0: Hi everyone, welcome to InfoLinks on the Record, a podcast hosted by Kurt Tees and myself, Olivia Winkler. In this episode, we interview David Cohen. David Cohen is a partner at Reed Smith and the practice group leader of Reed Smith's Records and eDiscovery practice group. This episode was previously recorded at ARMA InfoCon 2019. Please excuse Kurt's voice as he had a bad case of
1: laryngitis. We're here with David Cohen who's partner, Reed Smith. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So you presented this morning and talked about uh, evolving e-discovery, what records managers need to know. So we don't get too many uh, attorneys talking uh, in this forum so we're really um, excited to have you here. So tell us a little bit about your presentation and what it meant to this audience. Yes, and I was really excited that we had a lot of people show up for the presentation. Um, if you've been a practicing attorney, especially in the litigation area, you know how critical records managers can be and other information governance and IT professionals because so much about litigation in the United States is about the search for the evidence or what we call discovery. and. Uh, the United States has broader discovery rules than any other country in the world. Essentially, you're required to turn over anything that is relevant to the claim, any claim or defense, or potentially relevant to any claim or defense uh, of a party. And that is broadly defined. Um, it has been a uh, little bit reined in since late 2015 when the courts amended the rule about the scope of discoveries to say now it has to be relevant and proportional, which which was a good thing because relevant is too broad. There were cases that were going on where people were spending $100,000 on discovery on cases where there was only $50,000 in dispute. That makes no sense for anybody. So now the courts have explicitly said in rule 26B1, the rule that governs discovery, that it has to be relevant and proportional. But you still have this tremendous search for relevant information, which invariably leads you back to the information governance folks and the IT folks within a company. And I have found that those that that learn more about the discovery system and the kinds of things that I was talking about this morning, they really become empowered to do a much better job for their companies in terms of managing information, in terms of responding when there is litigation discovery. And in many cases, they can take steps that really cut costs of discovery or, or even give their company a, a chance for a better litigation outcome. So, um, so it was a pleasure for me to co-present this morning with Cheryl Strom who's the global records manager at McDonald's Corporation and one of the most knowledgeable people I know about information governance. And we talked about that intersection between information governance and the law. And we, we tried to give, I think, seven takeaways altogether for what IG professionals can do to help their companies uh, in regard to litigation matters. So take us back to the start of your career and how you became an attorney. Yeah, so uh, I always knew I wanted to be an attorney. My dad was a lawyer, so I sort of grew up knowing I wanted to go to law school. And he was a trial lawyer. Okay. And back there, then you had, you know, TV show Perry We're Mason. Mason. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad you and I are probably the only yeah. one here in the room that are old enough to uh, remember that. Uh, So I used to love watching that and these these dramatic cross-examinations where the witness would break down on the stand and admit they were guilty, which, of course, never really happens in real life, but sort of fun drama. So I sort of wanted to follow my dad's footsteps. Um, And so after law school, I joined a law firm and I started practicing litigation. And, uh, of course, the big law firms um, mostly represent big companies. I wasn't doing murder cases, although I did. To a clerkship with the district attorney in New York uh, over a summer, and I also uh, worked for the public defender, Harvard Defenders Organization when I was in law school, so I did get to do a little bit of criminal work there. But then when I joined full-time, I was doing work for corporations, and I quickly learned it's not all about being in the courtroom. 98% of litigation is outside, at least 98% is outside. In fact, in the federal system now, statistics show that Over 99% of cases do not go to trial, or approximately 99%. I think it's uh, the latest statistics were 1.1% actually proceed to trial. Um, And so, so much of what you do, even on the ones that proceed to trial, you might have two or three or four years of discovery practice. In some cases, I was on, they went on for 10 years before we ever got to trial. And then very often, they'll be disposed of on summary judgment or settlement. And so it's not, not uh, the, the drama that I thought I was getting into. But um, as a new lawyer in a big law firm, you tend to get the work that nobody else wants to do because <laughs> it all flows downward. And back then, that was the heavy duty document review. And when you get in big cases that involve one big company against another big company, or plaintiffs suing a big company on an issue, there can be tens of thousands of records, hundreds of thousands, or even millions. So some of my early cases were very big commercial cases where we had those, you know, more than a million documents. And the question is, well, how do we ever keep track of these? How do we find what we need, when we need it? And that was before the days of the evidence being electronic. That was the paper days. And so we actually, on some of the first cases I had, we had people hand index, what we called it coding the documents where we had low-cost people and we even had sent documents to India and to the Philippines to get people for each document to type in the bibliographic information like to, from, date, subject line, maybe would have them look for certain words in the text of the documents because you couldn't yet search uh, automatically. And uh, then we took that information and the computers weren't that powerful. We actually had to put it on a mainframe computer using an old computer language. So I started sort of at the beginning of what we used to call automated litigation support before the days of e-discovery. So graduated from that, pretty soon we could, uh, we went from basis mainframe software to BRS software that you could actually put on a PC. We went from just dealing with hard copy, first to microfilming, believe it or not, we had microfilm all the documents, and then eventually to imaging, and then tying in the imaging with the coding, but it was still a while longer before the OCR got good enough to really rely on and to do full text. And then of course, in the last 20 years, you know, everything's moved to creating Documents electronically in the first place so you don't really need to do the same kind of optical character recognition everything's already searchable and uh, And so the technology has really advanced a great deal And of course now is advanced to the point where we have things like Predictive coding or tar and other analytics um, but my career path I Started out as a general purpose litigator. I did all kinds of uh, commercial litigation and trials and I uh, moved my way up and became partner at my firm. Um, but what I learned was that there's a lot of good litigators out there who can try cases and want to try cases, but to be successful at a big law firm, you it really helps to have a specialty. And it's hard just saying your specialty is being a good litigator. For one thing, even when you try a case and you win the case, that means the case is gone, the client's gone, now you gotta find a new client. You know, it's not like, business lawyers you can have a loyal client that just hires them you know time after time maybe a little different for certain kinds of repetitive litigation but a lot of litigation I worked on I do a great job my client would love me but they didn't have another case for me right so I wasn't you know developing business and um, because of my early experience in big document cases people kept I sort of became the guy for the big document cases and people would come back to me and you know oh you have a a document case go to David Cohen he's done this before and so my hobby became automated litigation support and as time went on that took up more and more of my time so at one point I was doing maybe 60% straight litigation 30% consulting with other litigators at my firm on how to manage the documents then eDiscovery came along and that really got hot fast and it got to the point where I could spend a hundred percent of my time focusing on e-discovery and thereby have a specialty that was really in need. I found that clients were looking for that expertise so it could actually help me develop my own clients and so I had a decision to make, do you want to keep litigating, which I really enjoyed, but it wasn't probably going to be as professionally rewarding in terms of being able to develop business and being as much in demand, being sort of special in the law. Or I could go into e-discovery, which was just beginning to burgeon. So you were a pioneer in this area. Yeah, I mean, I think there were a lot of pioneers and some more than than me. But um, absolutely, I, you know, nowadays you come to conferences like this one, or I just came from uh, EDI, the Electronic Discovery Institute, via Relativity Fest. This is my third step on this particular road trip. And now you have like thousands of people come to these conferences who focus on e-discovery. They're e-discovery specialists and professionals. Well, when we started out, you know, there were maybe a dozen of us, you know, and you'd go to a conference and maybe, you know, 30 newbies would join you and you'd have 40 people at the conference. So it's really evolved quite a bit. But the nice thing for me is it's been a platform for me to become to create a records and e-discovery group at my first law firm, and then about eight years ago, I moved to Reed Smith, and I started their records and e-discovery group. And now we've grown to over 90 attorneys, so it's a huge area, and it's been a great career path for me to be in charge of this big group. It's a good and revenue generator for the firm. within this one group, 90 attorneys that are all within the e-discovery group. About 10 of them are traditional. Uh, partners, associates, and counsel that are sort of what big law firms are used to. But the other 80 are specialists in, uh, often in document review and things that surround document review like using the technology, managing legal holds, helping with information governance work. And the advantage that we've been able to offer to clients by getting away from just having the traditional partners and associates, partners and associates are very expensive for clients. And to the extent that we've been able to bring in people who have billing rates that are less than half of the billing rates of associates, we can save clients a great deal of money on not only the e-discovery, but now we're moving these, uh, we call them red attorneys because it's the records in e-discovery group or red group, We're moving them into support roles on giving information governance advice and counseling which is a lot of what i do uh, legal hold counseling other kinds of projects that before we had these people available would go to more expensive associates and because i've been doing this so long my group has gotten very experienced and we now average over seven years experience which is very rare in the industry most firms or companies, they'll hire people freshly out of law school to do the document review, and then those people will move on to something better. We've created a career path that's not just primary document review, but gives these lower cost lawyers more responsibility as they gain experience, and also focuses on, on really getting the high quality people, the jewels in the rough, so to speak. So tell us about how you brand this group. You mentioned bread. Yeah. So how does that factor into what Yeah, as I mentioned before the podcast, you know, we get taught at law school about the law. We don't, don't get taught a lot of the skills that you need to be successful in the law in a big law firm. And a lot of the legal practice you sort of learn by doing under the tutelage of more experienced attorneys. But there's some things that attorneys are pretty bad at because we never took a course in, for example, marketing or sales or branding. But what I found is if you want to get the word out about your group, then you need to start thinking about those things like marketing and branding. So one of my first questions when we joined Reed Smith was, well, what should we call our group? I wanted it to be something that was descriptive but also memorable so people would get to know us. And so we did do a lot of work with records and InfoGov counseling. Uh, We do a lot of work with eDiscovery. So records and eDiscovery, very descriptive and the acronym stands for RED. It sounds kind of cool to get the RED team working for you, right? So we became the red team and and have used that brand ever since. And I think it's become pretty well known now in the industry that we're the red team. Now, when you you present, what are some of the other techniques that you use? Uh, Well, we were talking before uh, about when I was a kid, my hobby was doing magic tricks. (laughs) And uh, so I've tried to incorporate a little bit of that into my presentations. So I've created a few magic tricks that... Pretty bad, but people appreciate <laughs> it when you're trying to, you know, do something a little different, make something that might otherwise not be that interesting more interesting. So uh, I've done that. I uh, really, you know, people. I hate to say it, but records management and e-discovery are not to everyone as exciting as they are to me. They're not the mm-hmm. most interesting topics in the world. So anything you can do to spice it up and make it more interesting is really n- nice. One of, my, uh, one of the things I did is a lot of our clients were looking for presentations to get ethics credit in continuing legal education. And ethics is a particularly dull subject, or it can be. So we decided to put together uh, a continuing legal education program about ethics in the form of a game. And so we created this whole game, which is kind of a cross between 20 questions and shoots and ladders. Everybody who's participating gets a game board. Mm-hmm. And we present a hypothetical case, and then some difficult ethical quandaries that the lawyers are faced with in the case. And then we tell the audience, okay, the lawyers did decided to do this, X. Was that ethical or unethical under the legal rules? And sometimes there will be multiple choices, you know, sometimes it's just yes mm-hmm. or no, sometimes A, B, C, D. So I've done this at many big conferences, some with as many as three or four hundred people in a room, where people have to hold up colored cards so you can see how they're voting. <laughs> if they get the question right, they advance upward towards ethical paradise, like ethical heaven. If they get the answer wrong, they fall down toward the ethical inferno. <laughs> And so the goal is to get to ethical paradise before the Ethical Inferno and we've given out prizes. And people really get into this and you know, because they're invested, instead of just sitting there and having people talk at you, you're actively involved and we've gotten so many great compliments from it. And uh, you know it sticks with you because you're thinking about it. You're invested in your decision, and mm-hmm. people will argue with you about the right answer. So one of the things is I have to bring all the sources that I'm quoting with me, so I can show them. Though this is what the ethics rules say about this. But we've now probably put on that program, you know, 20 different times at different conferences, and we do it for big in-house legal departments when they want to do legal training as well. So it's one of the ways we get known to some of uh, some companies or give a benefit to our clients, a little free benefit uh, for people already our clients. So tell us throughout your your history, how you've seen technology evolve and how that's impacted the discovery process.
0: I'm going to repeat your question because I don't know if that got picked up. Um, so David, you've talked a lot about how You've been in e-discovery for a really long time, and how you know things have changed, and how you've been a pioneer, and you know you're you're changing the trainings, you're changing how people perceive it. How has the technology changed over your career, and how has you know maybe firms Im- implemented it, embraced it more, or maybe how have they been you know wary to implement?
1: Yes. Uh, Well I think that law firms are not known as the most innovative uh, outfits. (laughs) I think they're becoming more innovative um, and partially because our clients are demanding it and uh, you know frankly one of the reasons I joined Reed Smith is because I think they're known as one of the most uh, innovative firms and they really have an appetite for this um, new ways of doing things in technology. In fact we launched a technology subsidiary a year ago it's Mm -hmm. called Gravity Stack and we're developing some of our own technology now um, in this area so you know some technology has been around for a long time i mentioned you know we use basis and brs which were originally computer indexing systems that were developed for librarians to you know catalog information and were adapted then for legal use and then a number of companies built other uh, you know some of the names you haven't heard of in years and none of your, your Readers, except or listeners, except very old people, will remember <laughs> things like InMagic and oh, Attorney Researcher. Yeah. So, you've been around for a while, yeah. But, um, and then, you know, Summation became, you know, products that you don't hear a lot about anymore. You know, today, the market leader is probably Relativity, it just came from uh, Relativity Fest, and that's an excellent program. 10 years ago, I don't think that maybe there was one tool for automating legal holds. Now I can tell you you know there's about six tools and some of them are fantastic you know in terms of how far they've come Um, and they can really cut down the time and effort and help you implement best practices and one of the biggest revolutions, and certainly the best way that artificial intelligence is being used in the law today is predictive coding and uh, what we sometimes call early case assessment which is really more accurately early data assessment which uses artificial intelligence to help you get a picture of your data early on and even before people start to review data, it can categorize it and show it to you in ways that are very helpful to find the key evidence because it's all about getting to the truth, finding those key documents, those key data points, and what the needle in the haystack, so to speak. And so the technology has gotten great at doing all that. Um, And now we're developing even more sophisticated technology. A couple of the things we've developed within Gravity Stack, one was a metrics program that sits on top of relativity or other uh, coding programs and tracks statistics. So we can now track by reviewer how fast or slowly is this reviewer going, how many overturns, how many mistakes did they make where the secondary reviewer reversed Mm -hmm. their decision so that we know who needs more help, you know who's really good, we have this person who's really fast, counsel the person who's really slow on, you know, what tricks are you using to go faster? What, you know, special features of relativity are there? We're using BrainSpace, which has all kinds of cool features in terms of how you can look at and cut down data. So projects that might have cost us half a million dollars um, five years ago, we can now do for, you know, 90% less because we can take advantage of this technology. And one of the latest uh, products, which I'm proud of because I helped develop it, Gravity Stack now markets, and a company called Systrand markets it as well, it is software that automatically anonymizes or pseudonymizes documents. In other words, it takes out personal information like names and account numbers, social security numbers, et cetera that's really important for privacy compliance when you're in cross-border situations for example part of gdpr compliance is Mm -hmm. uh, redacting or anonymizing or pseudonymizing personal information also you know producing documents in the u.s so that is now taking advantage of artificial intelligence to do something which in the old days you would have had human beings had to sit down and read every page and redact that stuff Mm -hmm. Um, or with some technology that would help them. With the anonymizer, you, you can take 100,000 documents, stick them in one end, the text documents, and 100,000 anonymized documents come out the other end, mm-hmm. and you have a lot of ways you can customize that to pseudonymize or to look for certain product names and so on, right. but it's now a- automated. So there's tremendous potential for saving costs and time mm-hmm. as a result of this new technology.
0: So to you know, you've talked a lot about how innovation saves time and saves money. So obviously the benefits of saving money are you just save money, like Crazy. money back <laughs> in your pocket. But what about the time? What are what can lawyers now do with that time that they're saving from not that from not having to review these miles and miles of documents?
1: lawyers can focus on what they're best at and what, what is the highest value work for the most talented and experienced lawyers, which is the case strategy and um, doing you know the motions and arguments and those kinds of things. So there was a time when The model for big law firms was to pile on associates on cases and just churn a lot of money. And they were having people at associate rates, possibly hundreds of dollars an hour, do a basic document review that you don't, you know, the big firms hire top 10%, you know, the top law school graduates. You don't need the guy at the top of his class at Harvard or Yale to do primary document review. um, don't get me wrong, some of the people that I employ who do document review are great people and do a great job, and it is a talent. But you don't necessarily need the highest price talent to do those kinds of things. So the model was to just keep hiring as many associates as we could get. And we used to hire, you know, just in my office in Pittsburgh, 20 to 30 new associates a year, and clients would, would pay for them. And eventually, clients figured out hey, this is not a good use of their time. And by the way, the associates didn't like it either. I didn't graduate from Harvard Law School wanting to sit down and do nothing but read documents for two years of my career. So when we came up with the idea of having specialists and using technology to make this a more um, technology leverage thing, this was good for everybody. The associates like it and the the reviewers like the technology. And we're now employing people that aren't necessarily in that top tier of law school graduates but who are still very talented and do a very good job. So it was all good. So the law firm model had to change and we had to get away from that you know, four to one partner to associate or actually associate to partner ratio because clients didn't wanna pay associates for low value work. So essentially what we did is we slowed down our growth, and when I say we, I'm not just referring to my old firm, Mm -hmm. probably applies to my new firm, which I wasn't with at the time, but probably applies to most of the Amlaw 100, okay? Slowed down growth, took out work that could be done at lower cost and channeled it to lower cost people, and I think we've been able to do more than most because a lot of people just hired temps, and we did too, to do the primary review, but where we were different is we also have this second level of experienced lawyers who have a career track, essentially the equivalent of staff attorneys who aren't just freshly minted lawyers who are experienced and it can do more than just primary document review, but yet still way, co- way lower cost than partners. So that's the key. is. Um, what you do, it's long answer to a short question, you have the attorneys spend their time where the billing rates justify it, which mm-hmm. is on the strategy issues, on the advocacy in court, and you cut down therefore on the number of associates that you need, and instead of hiring so many new associates, now we hire 5 to 10 instead of 20 to 30, and we fill in with staff attorneys who deliver more value to clients at less cost.
0: Great. Well, fantastic. Yeah. Um, uh, Dave, is there anything that you're working on you know, for the future? Where do you see e-discovery evolving even further?
1: Um, well, it's definitely continuing to evolve. Um, you know, we continue to work through the technology subsidiary Gravity Stack we're working on improving products, developing new products. But I'll mention one that is, is kind of near to dear to my heart because I'm also involved with this. A lot of the technology that has been traditionally used for litigation can be used for other purposes, including basic information governance. So some of the artificial intelligence that has been used for predictive coding can be used to help information governance professionals meet the challenge of identifying data that they need, searching for data that they need, and just as importantly, remediating what we call redundant, obsolete, or trivial data, the rots, okay? A lot of companies have a lot of old data that they just never threw away, whether it be old email, uh, archive systems, even paper records. Most of the clients, when I first talk to them, they're paying thousands, usually tens of thousands of dollars a month to Iron Mountain or another storage company to store boxes of paper that are more than 10 years old. Nobody's looked at them in 10 years and nobody will ever look at them again. And yet they're writing that check every month. And the key is to get rid of that old data. It's cost effective in the long run, cuts down the risk of data breaches, lots of good things. Well, technology can help with that. Um, And so that's an area where we're using it. We're also using some of the litigation technology now to do things like contract analysis. And just to give you one example, the uh, LIBOR rate, the London Interbank interest rate, that's going away in a couple of years. Well, how many contracts have you signed that have interest provisions where the interest is tied to the LIBOR rate? Any of those contracts which are still going to be in effect when LIBOR goes away, which is millions of contracts literally in the world, they're all gonna to have to be amended, okay? Somebody's gonna to have to go look through those contracts, figure out which ones have LIBOR provisions, which ones are still gonna be effective when LIBOR goes away, get those contracts amended. That's a huge undertaking for banks, financial companies, but also for really all, all kinds of companies. Well, we're working on using artificial intelligence technology that you can feed these contracts into to find the answers. Where, what are the provisions? What are the references to LIBOR? Are there standard forms? Can we automated, Can we do automated amendments? And even coming up with workflows that uh, streamline the process of negotiating those amendments with the contracting parties and all those kinds of things. There, there's a role for discovery attorneys, like my group of uh, e-discovery attorneys, but there's a big role for technology as well to cut down on what you need in terms of the human, uh, the human element. So that's an example of taking technology that was originally developed for um, litigation, like you know we're using a relativity platform and using something called Heretic, which does uh, contract analysis, um, and combining them together to create new advanced technology to help solve legal problems. We're definitely seeing more and more artificial intelligence and other advanced technology used as a tool in the law.
0: David, thank you so much for all that information. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: If you enjoyed our show, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you have a few moments, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps listeners like you find our show. And if you want to keep up with the latest from InfoLinks, please follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. This is InfoLinks on the Record. Thank you so much for listening.